This morning, uh, I have a friend of mine who is here to share God's word with us. Uh, about, um, I was about six years ago, I think, we were at a conference, and we were both there by ourselves, and, uh, and uh, both kind of just um, quiet, introvert-type people, and so we, were, we just happened to sit next to each other, and we, started to, we struck up a conversation, and I found out that he was a missionary in the United Arab Emirates. I had to get a map out, because I had no idea where the United Arab Emirates was. I, I was certain it was somewhere in the Middle East. And I had never met anyone from the UAE before, so I, I had a lot of questions and, and found out a little bit about what he was doing. And so we've kind of stayed in touch over the years, and I found out that he and his wife Katie were coming back to the States to have their sixth child. And uh, so I, I found out he had a weekend free, and so we got him up here. Uh, he and his, his family are staying in Austin, Texas right now uh, while they're waiting for um, baby number six to come, and then they'll be heading back uh, soon thereafter back to the United Arab Emirates. And so I just want Steve to be able to share with you this morning from God's Word. And then this evening, I just want to throw out a little plug. Uh, during the, um, the junior high uh, Route 28 and the kids club time at 5.30, when I normally have my class back there in Route 28, we're going to have Steve just have an open forum if you want to ask him questions about United Arab Emirates and the ministry there, uh, what kind of food they eat. Uh, you can ask um, about their kids, their family, whatever, whatever comes to your mind, and uh, he can share a little bit more about his ministry. So we'd love to have you come out this evening for that. But uh, as Steve comes on up, I just want to pray for him this morning. Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege to come to sing your praises this morning, to hear your word, to fellowship with your people. And this morning, as we think about that last song, just how desperately we need you. Every hour, every moment, Lord, we need you. Teach us to be people who rely upon you each and every day, who don't try to have at it ourselves and to figure things out apart from you, but to rely on the work of your spirit in our life, to look at, at the word of God and study it faithfully, to spend time talking to you so that we might walk in the spirit. Lord, as, as my brother comes to share this morning, would you please guide his words? Would you please speak to our hearts as we study the book of Ephesians today? And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, hopefully I don't uh, trample all, all over some important paperwork here. Good morning, Brown Corners. It's cold here. <laughs> but I'm sure a few of you are probably warmed by uh, apparently some sporting event that happened last night. A few of you. Um, you know, being an introvert, as your pastor pointed out, you know, I, it means that every relationship that I have, everyone that I meet, um, I know for certain that it's not an accident, right? I understand that everyone I meet, every relationship is not an accident. It's not an accident that I'm here today. It's not an accident that I met Pastor Jeremiah back uh, six years ago. Um, but that is highlighted by the fact that whenever I go to conferences, I kind of tend to just go stand in a corner and um, be overwhelmed by uh, the crowds and go back to my hotel room and suck my thumb and try to recover. But I'm thankful for uh, the encouragement that your pastor has been to me and um, privileged to be able to come up here 
to be with you this morning. And so before we get into the Word of God, let me just pray for my uh, benefit before we get started. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you today in the name of your Son, Jesus. And I am so encouraged to see, Lord, and be reminded once again that you have your people not only all over the United States, but all over the world as well. And so, Father, I pray that we would understand what it means to be your people, that we would live accordingly, Father, that we would see that we are not simply a community, but we've, we're a community that you have redeemed for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a testimony to your glory, a monument to your glory, and that today as your word um, comes to us, God, that um, it would serve that end in the hearts of your people. And I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians and keep that open with you today. Uh, But before we get there, you know, what's so interesting is that driving up the highway and coming here to, to Brown Corners this morning, I was reminded uh, of just, here it is, another church building in America, another church, another place where on Sunday morning people are gathering together, we assume, to sing songs and to to pray and to hear the Word of God preached uh, to some degree or another, I hope. And, you know, just the other day when I was visiting my parents in Texas, I noted that as I was uh, driving down the street, there was at least five churches that all had the name Baptist in their name within about a, a five-minute drive. That's how many churches there, there were. And rather than that making me um, suspicious of why there's so many churches, living where I am in the world, it actually makes me immensely thankful. You know, if I was driving down this highway right here, you know, I might just think it's just another church building. But whenever you see it, what you see is what I hope is something amazing that's happening, that God has gathered his people together. It's a great privilege to be able to gather. You know, one of the things that we are struggling with right now in the UAE is that the government is, is, uh, is restricting more and more Christians who are gathering together. And so I say that to highlight for you that I hope that this is precious to you that as you gather together. To have this freedom, to be able to gather, to have many churches in a, in a small town. It is a great privilege. Um, But, you know, whenever I'm driving down the road and I see these churches, you know, the question that oftentimes comes to my mind whenever I drive by is, I wonder what it's like in that church gathering on Sunday morning. I'm getting the privilege of seeing your gathering here today, but I I wonder that as I pass by every church. Now, being being kind of pessimistic, I can immediately probably assume some bad things about different churches. We probably all tend to do that. But I wonder, what is that church like? Why do they gather together? Why have those people actually come together that morning? What is their purpose and what is their intention? And I think that's a question that we actually should all ask ourselves as churches. Is why are we doing this? Why did we get out of bed this morning? Why did we put the energy into it? Why did we come here today? Not only as a community, but on just a very individual level of what motivated your heart to want to be here today. 
Because I, I think that the reason ch- churches should gather together and the reason why Christians should be committed to each other in community is oftentimes for much bigger reasons than many of us realize. Or perhaps for reasons that we very quickly forget in the routine of life. I wonder what you individually, what you today think the role of this right here is in your life. What did you hope to gain from being here this morning? Why do you think that this church at Brown Corners exist? Why does Emmanuel Church of Fujira, my church, exist? Or any number of churches you see as you drive down the road. Why does this exist? This, is, this right here, what's happening in this room, is not a human invention. I think we all acknowledge that. It was created by God, but like all inventions, it was made by God for a purpose. And I think we can only know why we should be doing this, what we should aim for, and how we should view the the role of this right here in our lives if we first understand why God created it. You know, I step into the kitchen all the time to try to help my wife with making dinner, and I find all kinds of things in the drawers in the kitchen that I frankly, I don't understand why it was invented. Come to find out you're supposed to be able to crush like garlic with it or whatever. It's not much use to me. It doesn't serve the purpose it's supposed to serve if I don't first understand why it was made. And I think it's immensely important for us to understand why this here this morning was created. Understanding why churches exist and why, spoiler alert for coming from a missionary, why planting churches is a priority requires that we understand what God is doing in the world. If God has created this, invented it to serve his overarching purpose in human history, then we need to understand what God is doing in human history. Now to do that, we could do an overview of the whole Bible to see that. But time constraints that your pastor has placed on me um, and my lack of brevity does not allow for that. But... No reason to fear because the book of Ephesians, the reason why I went there is because it provides what I think is the best snapshot of what God is doing in history and then what that means for the church, how that relates to what we're doing here this morning. In this book, this letter, what many people think is a circular letter that Paul wrote to stir up churches in that area and and call them to walk according to their calling, um, is, 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 is something that Paul wrote, it seems, as you read it, to remind them of what God is doing and what that has to do with their life together now. Life together Paul is writing to them what their life together is going to look like in light of what God is doing, in light of redemption. 
Now, we're not going to have the time this morning to read all of Ephesians. And so we're going to be, I'm going to, going to be giving an overview of things. I'm going to be summarizing things. We're going to be reading bits and pieces of it. So as we jump through it, you need to trust me for now. But I encourage you to go immediately after leaving here and read it, okay? Don't trust me that much. Uh, go immediately after here and read it. It only takes about 20 minutes, even faster if you're, if you're a fast reader, okay? 20 minutes tops to read through the book of Ephesians. So I encourage you to do that. So why are we doing this this morning? Why am I with my wife and my six kids pursuing establishing this right here in the Middle East and beyond? Well, to understand the real reason, we need to know what God is doing. And so keep your Bible open in front of you and perhaps glance at the page as we, as we dive into trying to understand what it is that God is doing. Paul, writing this, knew that if his readers, the churches in and around Ephesus, were going to understand what their life together was supposed to look like. They needed to understand why they existed. They needed to understand what God is doing, how they actually came to exist. And so in chapter 1, if you, if you read it and glance over the, his introduction there, Paul uses uh, was actually one of the longest, perhaps I think maybe, maybe it's the longest sentence in the New Testament to to describe in the broadest terms to them how God has loved them and chosen them and predestined them for adoption as sons to receive an eternal inheritance and all of this according to his great grace for the praise of his name. Paul is emphasizing here that you are these blessed and these privileged people who have this privileged status and it's all because of God's power and his plan at work in you. It's all his work. And then he prays for them. And he prays for them to be able to understand. And essentially what he's praying for them to understand here is he's praying for them to understand the magnitude of what God is doing. The power, the eternal power that is being wielded in their lives together as God is bringing a sin-shattered creation back together into a beautiful display of his glory by bringing that broken, shattered creation into subjection to King Jesus. And in chapter 2, Paul goes on, to give the content of how exactly God is doing that in them. And we see there in chapter 2 that the way that God is redeeming, the way that God is taking what has been broken, you know, think of a mirror that's just been shattered into a million pieces, right? A mirror that's supposed to reflect the glory of God. That's what humanity was, right? We're supposed to know him and live with him and walk with him and reflect his glory, and sin has shattered that. And we see in chapter 2 that the way that God is making whole a sin-shattered creation is by saving and healing and restoring one by one individual image bearers of his glory. Individual pinnacles of that creation. The fallen human beings that you and I are. Broken warped and twisted by our sin. 
God is redeeming us by choosing us, by resuscitating us, by remaking us and reconciling us to himself. By raising from the dead people who are dead in their sin. That sin which is their rebellion against God leading to their doomed status under God's just anger, a helpless situation. And God does this. God redeems. God saves. God restores. God makes alive by His grace through faith itself that is granted as a gift. Notice that in the passage. Even the faith is something that God gives to us. And what this means, the point that Paul is trying to to make to the people so that they will rejoice and so they'll understand what God is doing is that it is God that saves. He's not manipulated. He's not appeased by us. He is not bought by us. God saves us by His grace and power. He makes us alive apart from anything we do. But the nature of this salvation, you'll notice, is that it makes us Alive when we were dead. It raises us to where not only we are no longer under his wrath. But we are now alive to righteousness. We are raised with Christ. That means we love different things. We have different goals, right? In Colossians, we're told to fix our eyes on Christ. Fix our eyes on things above where Christ is. Who is our life. We've been raised with Christ, and so we love different things, and we have different goals. And this change, this redemption becomes visible when we, being God's workmanship, begin to do truly righteous things, not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. That's the radical nature of the resurrecting work that God does Two people like us who are dead in our sin. But it doesn't stop there. What God is doing does not stop there. He doesn't just make us alive and, and, and begin to change what we love and what we care about. He doesn't just fix our relationship with Him. But the rest of chapter 2 goes on to teach that when we are raised with Christ, we are joined to, we are joined in Christ to everyone else that has been raised with Christ. There is a horizontal healing that occurs. You know, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, whenever Adam and Eve sinned against God, the very first thing, the very first fallout that you see is this fracture in their relationship with each other. Is that, is that then the, the husband, right, he, he, the, the woman blames um, the serpent. The husband blames the wife and essentially blames God. And then we end up seeing that, that go even further in their sons and murder even. Human relationships were fractured by sin. And we see this all around us, don't we? You know, living where I do in the world, what you find out is that things are just not very simple. We live truly in a place that horizontally is broken. And it's because people have turned their eyes inward. It's because people have put their hope in something other than the Lord himself. And all these things work together. All these twisted affections and false hopes work together to just drive us further and further apart from each other. 
What we find out is that God doesn't just stop by redeeming us and reconciling us to himself, but he reconciles us to each other in Christ. God makes a new humanity, a new community of resurrected people who have peace with God and with each other through the blood of Jesus. The Spirit unites those people in Christ, and it is there and only there that God unfolds His work of redemption, where through His living and abiding Word, what Paul here calls the the apostles and the prophets, through, through His living and abiding Word, by the Spirit, God builds these redeemed people into a dwelling for Him, it says, by the Spirit. Living stones, as Peter calls them, being built into a temple for God. And when it speaks of being this temple, this dwelling place of God, we think of what the tabernacle was supposed to be on the Old Testament, what the temple was supposed to be. It was a display of God's dwelling among men, the place of God's kind covenant presence with them where the nations could look and see and marvel that there is a God who makes himself known. There is a God who shows kindness to sinners. There is a God who saves. Therefore, in chapter 3, Paul can't help himself any longer, and he goes off on a rabbit trail, it appears, where inspired by the Spirit, he glories in the privilege of being an agent of this great work, of seeing people created in Christ who united together become a display of the love, wisdom, and power of God to men and angels forever. This is what God is doing. Now, I want to bring this into the real life that we experience. And what I mean by that is, what does this look like, what God is doing day to day? What does it look like, not just on the high-level scope of human history, but what does it look like, what God is doing day to day? We all, um, we all understand that, that in order to reach a goal, there are many things that happen. Hopefully, we get up in the morning and we brush our teeth so that our teeth don't rot and fall out of our heads. We go to work so that we can pay our bills. We have certain goals and we do a thousand things to reach those goals. So the question is, we see what God is doing. We see what his plan for humanity is. That is to raise dead sinners to life in Christ. Cleansing them of their sin. Making them new. Giving them new hearts. And uniting them together into a unified display of his glory. Okay, that's what God is doing But how is he doing it? Well, Paul has been setting all this up so that he can drive home to these believers and to us today how God does it, what it involves, and the importance of it. These grand, wonderful, ancient plans conceived in amazing grace and flawless wisdom, overflowing from boundless love and carried out by eternal power, happen, come about by the means of this right here. So let's think about that. How is God doing it? Look with me in your Bibles at at chapter 4. We're going to read a section here. 
chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. After describing what it is to them, what God is doing, and having prayed for them to, have the, to, to be able to understand, first of all, to, have the, to grasp from the heart what it is that God is doing, and then praying for them to have what they need to be able to carry out the implications of that, he tells them the implications of that. Starting in verse 1, he says, I therefore, based on all this that I've told you that God is doing, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What this is showing us is that God accomplishes His plan as His people walking in unity that is not just a concept, it's not just an idea, but something that is tangible, something that is visible. God accomplishes His plan when His people, walking in a visible unity, are equipped by pastors and teachers to speak the truth in love to each other to the end that we are like Jesus in what we think, in what we love, and therefore what we do, all for the magnification of the glory of His grace. The closing verses of chapter 2 and the opening verses of chapter 4 could not make this more clear. The context and the mechanism that God created for carrying out His redemptive work is this. Right here, what we're doing today. It is community aimed at the same goal. And I hope that every one of you here today who've committed yourselves to one another have the same goal. It is community aimed at the same goal, which is conformity to the image of Jesus and built on the same foundation, which is the Word of God. Friends, the unity you can enjoy, by the way, whenever you can take each other to the Scriptures, whatever your disagreements may be, as your foundation on which to build on. And when you can point each other, wherever you're at in your Christian walk, towards the same goal, 
which is to look like Jesus in what you think and what you love and therefore what you do. Our foundation is the Word of God. Our aim is conformity into the image of Christ. And God's mechanism of taking that foundation and building on it is Christians being visibly united, equipped with truth, fueled with the love of Christ, to speak Christ so we learn Christ to the end that we display Christ so that in Christ, through His church, God will be glorified forever and ever. In chapter 4, Paul shows us what he describes God doing in chapter 2. Paul shows us how what we see God doing in chapter 2, how that becomes visible. It's through unity created by the Spirit with the gospel as the glue, right? Remember how did, he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, in chapter 2, how do we have that peace? It is through the blood of Christ, It is the place, he shows us in chapter 4, the place where everything else he talks about from chapter 4, verse 16 onward happens. There is a context that God has in mind where we speak truth to each other in love, where we rebuke darkness, where we sing to one another, and where, where we submit to each other. The very things that are talked about here require the pursuit of a very intentional unity aimed at a very specific goal, built on a very specific foundation with leaders who are, who are committed to equipping you to pursue it, to pursue this. This, brethren, what we have right here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is a description of the local church, of what God designed for it to be. And it is the local church that is the way, the means by which God carries out his grand plan of redemption. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you as as a part of this church? It means we need to be orienting our hearts constantly and our minds to what God is doing. This is precisely why Paul prays what he does at the end of chapter 1. This is not something that just happens once whenever you're initially saved, when you're converted. We need to constantly have a spirit of revelation and wisdom. We need to be reminded. We need to come to a deeper grasp in our hearts of what it is that God is doing in human history. We need to understand our salvation, what has been done, and what God intends to do. We need to look at our attitude when we come into these doors. Do we come here so that we can look more like Christ? If that is, and it's not just here, we see also in Romans chapter 8. That is, that is what we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. That is where everything is heading. That is where redemption reaches its head. Is whenever we see Him face to face and we become like Him, it says in 1 John, because we see Him as He is. That is where everything is heading. And so does that inform our attitude when we gather as the church? That, that are we gathering here because we intend to look more like Christ? 
Do we approach the the preaching with the heart to be equipped to not only become like Christ ourselves, but to actually be equipped to help others become more like Christ? To show others Jesus? Are we committed to confronting the darkness together as Paul will tell them to do in chapter 5? Are we ready to lay down our lives and submit to each other with God's goal in mind? When we sing, are we singing to each other as we're told to do? On and on we could go through all these implications that Paul lays out. I would encourage you to go and read those things and say, when I gather together with my brothers and sisters, is that the posture of my heart? Am I pursuing life together in light of redemption? In chapter 5, Paul says that we need to walk as wise, redeeming the time because the days are Evil, And he describes walking as wise as understanding. what the, the opposite of being foolish is understanding what the will of the Lord is and what we do. In particular, he's speaking of our life together. And that does not mean, understanding what the will of the Lord is, does not mean getting a spidey sense about whether or not you should uh, buy a Ford or a Chevy or which teams you should have entered into your bracket for March Madness. For Paul, it means living according to what the Bible shows that God is doing. That's what it means to understand what the will of the Lord is. This is how we must approach life. This is how we must approach everything that we do together. For Paul, this is the very reason that we approach suffering without being overwhelmed. In Romans 8, 28, we hear that famous passage. It's a comfort to us where it says that that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, what is the good that Paul has in mind there in Romans? Well, it's what he says right beneath that, that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. And so you approach everything and every situation with the intention of viewing that as working towards the end of what God is doing. Now to reach this goal and to pursue this together, we could try to develop programs, and perhaps we should, perhaps you should. We could try to develop programs that will encourage speaking the truth to each other. Provide avenues for that. We could have, as we call them in Fujira, discipleship communities where small groups of people that get together to pray for each other and encourage each other and hold each other accountable. We could strive for greater doctrinal clarity. We could aim at a deeper holiness as a church. And all of these things would be good. In fact, such things are necessary. But there's one important ingredient here that Paul points out which is truly indispensable if we're going to live life together as churches in light of redemption. If we're going to be successful at at, at being the kind of church that God has called us to be, there's one important ingredient that we find here in the book of Ephesians. That is that in our desire as God's people to move forward and to make progress, we must never be moved from a heart-deep understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. 
The message which forms us, which we see in chapter 2, is also the message which fuels us and moves us onward. It is the message that we see in the armor of God passage in in chapter 6. You look at that armor of God and it's all aspects of the good news by which we've been saved. It is the message of our salvation in Christ, our redemption by His blood. The good news of incomprehensible love with which we sinners have been loved. All at the love of God in Christ. It is this alone which gives birth to speaking the truth in love to each other. It's this alone that, that, that drives us towards to, to live out what chapter 5 calls us to, which is to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love as Christ loved us. If we're going to live as beloved children, we must never lose our grasp on the understanding of the way that God has loved us. If we're going to walk in love as Christ loved us, we must never lose our grasp on the way that Christ has loved us. 1 John says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and that He sent His Son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. That's why Paul knows that if they're going to walk out their calling, if they're going to be what God intended the church to be, they need to have a spirit of understanding those things which he talks about in chapter 2. They need the spirit to come and give them understanding of just how bad our situation was and just how incredible God's love was for us. Which is why before Paul ever gets practical with these people, before he ever brings what they should be doing into the equation, he prays for them to have the strength with all the saints to comprehend the height and depth, and length, and breadth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. The gospel must never stop being good news if we are to be the church we were created to be. And I'm an outsider. I'm really thankful to be here with you today. I've enjoyed worshiping with you. And I I don't know where all of you are at this morning. But, you know, if you feel your heart cold, this morning. If you've come here just because it's something that you should do on Sunday, maybe you're afraid that um, business will go bad for you or you won't get over your health problem if you don't come here today. Perhaps you need to read chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Does that resonate as good news to you? That you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then like water for a man dying of thirst come the words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Does that make your heart sore today? Do the words, but God, cause you to just cling to one another? This is where we were. This is where we are heading. But God. Not because of anything I did. Not because I was good. Not because I was good at attending church. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even whenever I was dead, he made me alive. 
Is that your hope? If it's not, I hope it will be. And if it is, you need to know that you have to hold on to it. You can't forget it or be moved from it. Because it's the fountain and fuel of what we do as churches. You know, this is easier said than done. We must indeed be faithful to remember this good news, this gospel, to speak it and to preach it, to meditate on it. But at the end of the day, being a church, we have to recognize, is a supernatural event. It's a supernatural event. I enjoyed the music today, but it doesn't matter how good the music is. It doesn't matter how well the sound system is working. It doesn't matter how many people flood into this place. If there's not a supernatural work of God to bring understanding, to pour his love into our hearts. The church is a supernatural body. It is a living miracle, which is why Paul prays what he does. Look at the prayers of Paul in this letter, and I hope it fuels your prayer for each other. We need more understanding, God, of what you've done in Christ, of what you're doing. We need greater strength to comprehend your love. Because we can, you, you can gather and you can gather and you can gather and you can gather. And Paul knew very well that if the Spirit of God does not move, it's in vain. And so we need to join him in praying those prayers. If we're going to be the churches that God has designed us to be, called us to be. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling. Paul was passionate for churches to be what they were made to be. He longed for people to walk in a way together that made sense with what God was doing in history. That's why he wrote this letter. That's why he wrote Colossians. That's why he wrote the pastoral epistles. That's why he left uh, Titus in Crete to set things in order. And that's why he wrote Romans and, and on and on it goes. You know, and when you, what's interesting about that, for all the time that, that Paul devoted to the church and all the anxiety, it says in 2 Corinthians, he felt for the church. When you read Acts, you see that Paul was a missionary through and through. He gave of himself to press the boundaries and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet he devoted so much time and so much energy to the establishment of healthy churches. He always had his eyes, we see in Romans 15, he always had his eyes to where Christ had not yet been preached, and yet he was willing to camp out places for years at a time until the believers were well established. Why was that? Because for him, a heart for the unreached in the world was a heart for the local church, because as we've seen today, it is through the local church through Christians gathered, proclaiming and displaying what God is doing in human history through Christ, is through this that God makes His glory known and that He spreads the Word, gathering and growing His people. So think about it. 
If you believe by reading Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament that the way God is redeeming a broken creation is through local gatherings of redeemed people living out their calling, then if your heart is for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and and as you look at the world and the tragedies around us and the brokenness that's in it, I hope that's what we long for. If that is your desire, then it means that you will long to not only invest in your own church with your life, but it will lead you to long for more churches to be established and to flourish. That as you look at the brokenness in the world around you, your prayer would be for more churches. A heart to see everything subjected to King Jesus we can deduce from this passage here today, is expressed in a passion to be in and to plant healthy churches because that is how God redeems, heals, and loves a fallen world. That's why we have planted Emmanuel Church of Fujira. We went over there as missionaries with a desire to share the gospel and to make disciples, but I honestly didn't always have the clearest view of the reality that it is the church that makes disciples. It, is never, it was never meant to be a one-man show. When going to the frontiers of gospel work, gathering is always the goal. It must be. We need it. The world needs the local church. Claire, Michigan needs the local church. Your community needs you to strive to walk together according to your calling. And it is my hope and prayer, it is my hope and prayer that we would lean in together and that this morning. I could have in some way served as some encouragement for you to do that together here. And that you all would commit to pray for us us, and for others to do it in the farthest reaches of the world. Because the world needs churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the testament to your grace that it is and your power. This is not a human invention. This is your work. And Lord, I pray that your work would continue to be clearly seen in this place as your people pray and your word is proclaimed. We ask this, Father, for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.